these things are supposed to have killed people. Like Chani in southern Siberia, um, big lake, 50 miles long, 50 miles wide, but not very deep. But there's something there that in the last 14 years or so has killed about 19 people. Oh, people right. say, witnesses say it ran boats, rams boats, and knocks people into the water and grabs them and eats them. So the one thing I've noticed about you, you, you're the last time I saw you, you had one of these goatees. Yes, well, I um, during lockdown there was no barbers open and it's getting a bit scratchy and long and untidy, so I shaved it all off myself. Right. And then everybody said it took years off me, so I yeah, you, I left it like that. They, they're actually they're not they're not telling fibs. You actually do look a lot younger than last time I saw you. So much. <laughs> In fact, I think the last time we spoke, I, ju I just saw actually when I hit because I loaded up Skype, I had that ring in the background. The last time we had that conversation was uh, the 8th of December 2019. So that was the last oh. time we spoke. <laughs> what were we speaking about back then? Uh, I think we were talking about the El Masti and then we were talking about Mongolia. Oh. How did uh, what happened with us? I think you were talking about. Um, what was it? It was, yeah, it was the, the Mongolian trip you had. And, oh, Mongolian deathworm, yeah. Uh, no, no, yeah. not the deathworm. No, you, you were talking about the Almasti that you'd been over there. Oh, no, trip. no, that's that was in Russia. Oh, is it? Okay, sorry. That was in the Caucasus Mountains in Russia. Uh, that's my mistake. Man, so how have you been keeping? All right. I mean, I was supposed to have been going back to uh, Mongolia this year. To, to hunt the death worm again with a, a TV company from the States, but that's been put on hold till next year, so I hope it still comes through. Um, there was talk of going for a second trip to Tajikistan. Okay. So hunt relic hominins called the bull, but that's also fallen through. Uh, most recently, I made a, a a documentary about the Almasty with the Discovery um, Travel Channel okay. that they couldn't go to Russia because of COVID. So they filmed my sections in some caves in Dorset. <laughs> well, did they, did they make out there with the caves in Russia? Well, they didn't actually say that, but they look, uh, they look, you know, a cave is a cave, I suppose. And uh, it's where they filmed Destiny of the Daleks in 1979. Oh, man, so that ties into the whole Doctor Who thing we were talking about the other day. Yeah. Man, so how long ago did that happen? I mean, I guess these things... That, must, was, a, that was a few weeks ago, but it was a whole day's shoot. And I talked about uh, the various cases where the Russian military have had run-ins with them in their 20s, 30s and 40s. And then some more recent cases and the stuff I discovered when I was over there, the people I talked to. Oh man, so when, did, when was it you last went over to, to Russia? Oh God, that would have been... Oh... 2017? Okay. And you were, you were itching to get back in the saddle and ride back into the, uh, the backwaters of Russia. I know I would be. Well, where we went initially, when we first went to Russia in 2000, and, uh, I think it was 2008 we first went to Russia, uh, there were a lot of, of recent sightings of the creature in this area. 
but now when we went back to it it's been very much developed um the suslicks which are sort of um prairie dog type rodents that are supposed to form a fair bit of its diet they had all died out and there were no new sightings i mean we talked to people who had seen them years ago and people have confirmed other people's sightings from back in 2008, but no new sightings at all. So we'd have to go to a different area if we went back, if we went back again. That's, I guess, is that, is that just due to overdevelopment? Is, do you think that's hunting? Do you think that's their, their natural well, diet just gone off? I think it's a, a mixture of the Suslick die-off and too much human disturbance. When how often do you think that's happening to creatures that we that are just on the cusp of being found again, only for humans just to plough through and destroy like the local eco ecosystem? Probably all over the world in Sumatra, where I look for the Orang Pendek. Every year I go back and there's more you know coffee plantations and palm oil plantations. So I guess that's their country's eco. Oh, sorry, their um, economic basis, right? Mm. Yeah. It's terrible, really, because I guess we are, we're like a species with amnesia, as like um, Graham Hancock likes to say, and these things are just so close to us, and we just, we're just so destructive, aren't we, as a, as a species? Mm. That's, that's why it's important that these things are found, so the eyes of the world are then focused on that area. If, if I could prove Orang Pendek existed, everyone would be looking at you know, Karinti National Park and other areas in Sumatra. And if we can preserve them, then you don't just preserve around Pendek, you preserve the Sumatran rhino, the Sumatran tiger, uh, the Sumatran subspecies of the Indian elephant, and loads more creatures. Would you end up in a situation a bit like the conservation parks of Africa, where you have almost legal hunting in order to provide enough money to provide for the, uh, the park? as it were, uh, to pay for those people. Is that what would happen if we were to find these creatures? Or do you think they will be protected in, or they get taken to a zoo around the world kind of thing? Well, hopefully neither of those things, I hope they get protection where they are. Eco-tourism is, is the way forward. Sure. I've never agreed with sports hunting. I think the people that do it are weaklings and cowards and have small willies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's when all the, uh, the executives go out there, don't they, and just to, uh, shoot tigers and lions and stuff so i guess i i just like i was just saying a few minutes ago uh the last time we spoke was 2019 it was the christmas time there and uh you um i think i hadn't long come back from a trip i know we talked about the the el Masti, we talked about the orang pendek i mean so what has say the last two years looked like for you what's what's cryptozoology been like through the covid period well, mostly it's been on hiatus. I haven't really been able to do any field work, and very few people have. I mean, some people in the state who live near the areas where there are lake monster or Sasquatch reports have, you know, been able to continue their work. But most of my stuff is, is done abroad in places like Asia and Australia. So um, I haven't been able to do much at all, to be honest. I've, uh, I've got, I've got a new book out, um, Adventures in Cryptozoology, Volume 1, and Volume 2 is due out uh, sometime in the autumn. I haven't got an exact date yet. So what does your uh, Volume 1 uh, cover? 
Well, originally it was, it was written as one volume, but the publisher said it was too big. So that's why they split it in two. Uh, volume one is basically, it's an introduction to cryptozoology. And it looks at the background of cryptozoology and the history of it. And it goes on to look at things like uh, dragon legends, sea serpents, uh, lake monsters, um, various types of uh, mystery apes and hominins, such as the Yeti, the Orang Pendek, um, the Eren, Sasquatch, Almasti, and so forth. And some of the lesser well-known things like the Mongolian death worm and, uh, and things like that. And in volume two, it will be looking at things like uh, the Tasmanian wolf and the supposed the creatures that are supposed to be extinct, but are probably not. It's giant animals like gigantic, uh, sightings of gigantic crocodiles and anacondas and things. And then it will go on to recount my own adventures in volume two. And then the last bit of the book is, is advice on how to set up your own cryptozoological expedition if you want to do it from scratch. All right, cool. Because that, so I was going to say, is it a kind of layman's introduction or is it more of a broad scope? But I guess you've kind of answered that there. Um, so if someone was to take on your book, would their options be to contact you um, and then go, hey, can I come and join you kind of thing? Is that kind of what you would like these people or buying you? Well, it's, it's encouraging people to to do their own expedition. So I break it down, you know, bit by bit, like I had the importance of getting guides, getting the correct inoculations, um, you know, doing ground research. So you, you maximize your time in the field and things like that. So it's about, it's about um, setting up your own expedition. The more people we get doing this competently, the more chance there is that someone's going to turn something up. Absolutely. Um, I think that's the most important thing, because the more eyes there is in the field, the better. Because I guess that's what we need, don't we? We need more people in the field, more people actually touching the ground, as it were, and more, you know, teams out there, you know, trying to find what is out there, because I guess they are, is our biggest question, isn't it? What, what is it out in the, in the woods? What is out in the, in the deserts and so on? <laughs> So with you, I mean, so I can remember that you were talking a lot about your health conditions the last time I spoke to you. How have, uh, how have they improved? Oh, well, um, I suffer intermittently from gout. That's what I can remember you saying. You, were, you yeah. said you, you felt that you were going, like, getting Victorian health conditions. Yeah. <laughs> gout and consumption. Yes, I have. Um, yeah, but I, I, I sort that out with a tablet called Culture Scene, which... Uh, sorts it out within a couple of days. Thankfully, I've, I've never had it you know, whilst I've been on an expedition. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm an asthmatic, but I'm not a bad one. I've, I carry inhalers with me, but I seldom have to use them. Uh, yeah, so my, my mother and my son are asthmatic. It appears to have jumped me. I've, of course, I've had, I've just been sent three weeks in the hospital um, due to COVID. Mm, and that, I've that, been following your your uh, nightmarish uh, experiences online. Dude, it hasn't been good. I mean, I've today I was the first time I've actually been out beyond uh, the city, or kind of in the city, really, um, and just getting about. And even that was pretty exhausting. Uh, yeah, I had to wear this like secure mask around my face. Um, they they were going to sedate me. 
they wanted to kind of like suck out some stuff from my lungs while I was out. Um, they thought the best option for me was to be sedated, to lay on my chest um, and basically just rise it out. But they didn't do that. They, they put what's called a uh, pept mask on me. Um, like I said, it was literally like chained around my head. Um, had two people had to put that on. Um, it was literally was it was pushing um, ninety five percent oxygen into my lungs, and that was just the strangest experience for like twenty three hours a day, and that was exhausting because your lungs are forced to um, the air is forced into your into your mouth, so your lungs are expanding constantly, even though you're breathing out, <laughs> and that was just the strangest thing. And then um, so I came, I was in ICU. Then I moved to critical care. Then I went onto a respiratory ward and I was on that ward for about a week or so, uh, bringing my oxygen level. Cause um, what happened is the week I'd had a test, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was here. So I'd spent most of that week off work. And then I was, my GP recommended that I track my blood oxygen level and my heart rate um, three times a day, like after meals kind of thing. Um, and on one of those, I think it was the Friday, my blood oxygen level was at 58. Um, so I'd rang 111 and I'd gone, hey, this is the situation. And when the paramedic came and says, have that hit 45, you'd have been gone. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and, and for a guy who's never, ever been to hospital, never had a health condition that needed kind of medical intervention, it was a, it was a weird experience just to have all that intensity all around me. I'd never had anything like that before. Had you, been, had you been jabbed prior to that or not? I had not, no. I, maybe I, I'm more, I was cautious about taking it. You know, there's a lot of feedback about the people who are having the vaccines. My neighbour downstairs has lost control of her arm. There's a guy I know who's now permanently, he can't walk. So I, I was really, what's the word for it? Um, not comfortable with taking the vaccine until I'd, I'd, enough people had. Um, I was just going to kind of wait it out and see what happened with more people um, with the yellow card system and what was being reported. So I hadn't had it. But where I work, I generally don't work with that many people. I'm, I'm a warehouse manager with a UK supermarket. Um, so I spend most of my time away from people. So generally wasn't having uh, interactions with many people. I didn't really have to wear a mask where I was. Um, so I was kind of in a bit of a bubble there as well. So I didn't do it. Um, had I known what I was going to go through, I think I would reconsider. I, I was double jabbed fairly early on because when I'm not hunting monsters, I work for the NHS. Right. Um, I had no, absolutely no um, side effects whatsoever. Oh, good. I mean, so, I mean, that's something I need to do. So right now, the doctor I had there was telling me, so I have... T-cell immunity, he said that could last. Uh, there's no recording of how long they, they last, but he said he, he can expect it to last up to a year. Uh, but, so within the next eight to 16 weeks, make sure you get uh, the vaccine, or one of them at least, and go from there. Mm. A friend of mine was double jabbed and, and he went to a concert, he got it, and he was, he was you know, down for about a fortnight with it. Oh, he didn't have to go to hospital, but him and his, his wife were it knocked them about a bit. 
Yeah, it appears to affect people in different ways, which is really unusual for a virus in the in the way that it's affecting people. Some people, it's just a cough and a sneeze, and it's it's all done. Um, I was listening to uh, the Joe Rogan show the other day. He had it for a day, but then again, he had ten thousand uh, cc's of vitamin C. He said, and then the next day, he was gone. Um, so <laughs> I kind of wonder if you've got the access to medication, or you can look after yourself. You know you have more of a fighting chance to deal with it quicker. Um, and some people it affects long-term like that, this whole long COVID thing. Uh, there's, a, there's a lady at work who hasn't had a taste now for about a year. Um, my taste is not even affected. Um, I can't taste things that are really sweet anymore. And some things taste more sour than they should. But apart from that, I can taste okay. Oh God, not being able to, to taste sweet. That would be a nightmare for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a complete sugar addict. <laughs> so, yeah, um, when I came out of hospital, I, I kind of joked that I really wanted a pizza. So I had a pizza, and I had this, I had a bottle of Pepsi that came with it. I couldn't taste the Pepsi at all. Um, but that was the first thing I couldn't taste, of how sweet it was. And I, I, I drink Pepsi pretty often, so I was just like, I just can't taste it. This tastes really, yeah. <laughs> so, but... I don't know. I think it's coming back. I think it's a, a little bit more potent than it was. So I have to say that it clearly is a recovery for me, but for some people, not at all. Can't, can't imagine not tasting anything permanently. That's got to be awful. I mean, what, imagine what your favourite food is, and then you realise that you can't eat it anymore. <laughs> well, you could. Mm. Can't taste it. Strange. Mm. I mean, so I guess, how is that? How is it really... A, affected you so you say so you you can't get out in the yeah. field and um, so is it because you had plans to go around the world but the travel restrictions were the problem is that was that the main problem yes the, tra the travel restrictions are the problem so i'm hoping it's going to be lifted by next year i was going to say how are they looking now i mean so how what is the traffic well, so what is the uh, conditions on travel now for the places you want to get to have you, have you been watching that? Uh, well, I haven't looked in the past few weeks. So the last time I looked, Mongolia was amber. So how much how much would that actually cost as a um, um, as a trip to go to there? Would it, would you need like a whole team to come with you as well? Well, I was going to go with a TV company on this, and they were they were putting the bill. It was for okay. documentary, which hopefully is still going to happen. So I guess for them, it's just a case of just kicking the can down the lane, isn't it, for when things yeah. are lifted? So you said that was with the Travel Channel? No, no, that was a, a, an independent American company that uh, got some uh, some backing. So they were making a, uh, a big documentary about cryptozoology, and hopefully it will still, it will still come off. Yeah, because I, I see the Travel Channel has replaced the History 2 channel in the US, hasn't it? Which yeah. used to be the channel that did all the ancient alien stuff and monsters. No, when, I was, when I was making the Al Maski documentary for the, uh, for the Troll Channel, the director there says that the Troll Channel has gone bonkers on cryptozoology because they thought they're finding that that's what brings in the, the viewers. Yeah. So, you know, fingers crossed they get a lot of work out of the Troll Channel. Absolutely, because like, if there's a channel dedicated to that, and I guess... Having it as, as a broad-termed name like travel means as, as a production house, they can do a lot more content as whether with, with history. I guess you can't. 
because you're restricted to talking only about what was as opposed to what is just mm. by the name alone so I, th I think that should certainly open a lot more avenues for work for you and uh, get some more people eyes on shows well fingers crossed i mean I, they want to do one on light monsters i know so I, i've sold them the the story i've, I've told them all about um the russian light monsters the, the three lights in siberia okay. where these things are supposed to have killed people like chani in southern siberia um big light 50 miles long 50 miles wide but not very deep but there's something there that in the last 14 years or so has killed about 19 people oh, people right. say witnesses say it ran boats rams boats and knocks people into the water and grabs them and eats them yes so psychologically that's a bit different isn't it because that appears to be an aggressive yeah well they said there's one guy said he was fishing with his friend when this thing described as serpentine and about 30 feet long rams the boat uh, flips it over and it grabs his mate and he makes it to the shore but he never sees his friend again another witness was uh, an old woman who saw her grandson who was a soldier who's aged 23 on a boat fishing in the lake once again the creature rams the boat grabs him never seen again and they've asked for an official government investigation and the government says oh people are just getting drunk and drowning well that's a but bits of them have been washed up that have been chewed by something so it's the kind of getting drunk and drowning that bites chunks out of you yeah. sounds like the plot to a horror novel it certainly does i mean so what, what do you think that would be as in like a species what kind of creature would you expect that to perhaps well your... sturgeon can get up to 23 feet long the beluga sturgeon but they're not aggressive and they're not known for eating people they're bottom feeders so unless it was a fantastically big and aggressive sturgeon and it wouldn't be a sturgeon uh, it could be some form of huge eel or it could be something completely unknown to science but about other lakes in eastern siberia um lake labanika and lake verota where there are similar stories in, in lake labanika the the nomads say because in, in lake chani there's you know towns and villages around it but lake labanika is totally isolated but nomads make camps there and they say they've had rafts overturned by something that grabs people uh they say that deer pursued into the lake are grabbed by this huge creature uh, moscow university caught something massive on um sonar there a couple of years ago oh. when i visited there but there's never been a proper investigation you know since the 1950s and people in the 1950s from you know, moscow university saw creatures there but they said have broad heads and broad backs with dorsal fin and then the other light like verota very similar stories and description but there were two scientists there that were on a a dead tree that went out into the light the tree out of the light and they saw something moving with light patches and they realized they were eyes and they were the eyes of this thing that seemed to be stalking them in the water some sort of huge fish which they couldn't identify but it was absolutely enormous and they, they scarpered off this dead tree so this was back in the 50s but there's never been a you know dedicated proper long-term expedition to any of these lakes and i would like to get out there and investigate all three with underwater cameras and baiting and um, camera traps left 
train on carcasses at the water's edge, talking to witnesses and trying to work out what's going on there. Yeah, because I guess if it is getting close to the edge to take uh, bait, or and it is taking um, meat, as it were, you know, I guess mm. you, it, it's, it would be relatively easy to get a reaction from that if it's in, you know, Pacific area. Um, so you could have underwater cameras with bait. You could have ones on, on the, the edge of the, the lake as well. Yes. Do you think it, it comes shallower at the sides? Is that still how this particular... It is, well, Lake, lake Channing is fairly shallow, shallow altogether. It only goes down to about 23 feet. Okay. So it should be easy to attract something. Yeah, because that's obviously the issue with uh, obviously Loch Ness, isn't it? It's deep all the way and it's all murky water. So as well with something like that, that sounds like it could yield much more positive results in a, in a quicker time run. But do you think it's because it's it's because it's isolated? Do you think that's the reason why it hasn't been investigated? Oh yes, yeah, that's the main reason that they're isolated. Another thing I'd like to do is to get buoys and have bait underneath them attached with rope. So if anything grabs the bait and pulls hard enough, pulls the buoy underwater, you know there's something bigger and stronger in that lake than anything recorded. Yeah, I guess there there is only a limited amount of things to do. And I guess if it's an animal, it's going to be just following um, for meals, isn't it? So I guess it's just a case of get the cameras out there and see what it is. I mean, it's still amazing what it what it could be. And I guess it what it could be is it's it still ticks into that Loch Ness. It could be a, a remnant of a dinosaur, perhaps, or a plesiosaur. Do you think that could still be the case in those lakes? No, 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 zero chances of that. There is nothing in the fossil record that suggests that plesiosaurs survived the KT extinction event. Uh, they were salt water rather than fresh water. Um, they needed warm water. They were reptiles, so they, they needed a, a warm water, not cold Siberian lakes. They were air breathers, so you would see them surfacing more often. If you watch the, a lake with plesiosaurs in it for any length of time, you'd see them breaching to breathe. So uh, they're, they're, they're a non-starter. More likely to be Elvis Presley in a rubber suit than it is to be a plesiosaur. <laughs> oh, man. Could be the sea devils, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the sea devils might have been the first serial of Doctor Who I actually watched in its entirety when I was a kid. The bit I remember is where one of them is burning through a door with its gun and it sticks its claw around. Yeah. Where the claw comes from. It's still one of my favourites. Absolutely. Thank God, thank God they haven't been brought back by the modern travesty and bastardising the way the Silurians were. It is surprising how they haven't dipped into the lesser characters of the older series, um, apart from the Daleks, the Cybermen, etc. They haven't, they haven't played with the rest of them. And like, like you said, your fear there is is well justified with what they've done in more modern Doctor Who. It, it, yeah. Well, I, I stopped watching yes. as soon as Jodie Whittaker was cast. That was it for me. I stopped watching Doctor Who and I stopped watching the BBC and I no longer pay my license fee. And I wrote to them and told them why. And sixty percent of viewers have been driven away now by the stupid gender flip Doctor and the woke scenarios white straight male is bad narrative well that's your biggest demographic you've just driven away it's um, crazy, isn't it and you're finding yeah. that across all heroes and science fiction in general is yeah that, that is the push and it's like the little little luke skywalker to to give power to some new female character 
Yeah, I, I'm all I'm all good with female characters in general, but as long as they have a reason. To... Yeah, so am I. If they'd have done a spin-off series with Romana, I would have been fine with that. Absolutely. It's like, give me a reason. If they do it because they want to take things away. That's what that's what the woke and the, and the PC they do. They don't. They like to take everything and control everything. And if you're not part of their vile little narrative, then they'll try and cancel you. And it's time we woke up and smelt a coffee on this. So Actually. On that note, then, so what do you think about uh, James Bond changing to a woman at the end of this new Bond movie? What's about? So I, well, I haven't seen it yet. No, I mean, but, uh, the whole the whole concept is ridiculous. Um, I mean, I haven't liked the new James Bonds. They take themselves way too seriously. The best James Bond for me was Roger Moore. Yeah, so I like a bit lighthearted. Well, I like the sort of comic book style shenanigans and mad villains. Who, outlandish plots for world domination i mean you could argue that um the new guy what's his name um daniel craig yeah he's the closest to the actual books because in the books he's a, he's not a suave lady killer he's just a psychopath <laughs> he's well, just a nutcase that <laughs> with a gun that's exactly what uh mi6 recruits they want as yeah. effectively uh who are smart and that, i guess that's what james bond really is um but all these franchises are dying. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is dying. Um, DC films are dying. Um, and Doctor Who is effectively dead. Star Trek, Star Wars, they're all dying because they keep pushing the, the woke narrative and then doubling down on it sure. when fans complain. Yeah, because That's what you get when, when you put ideologues in charge of something. You can't have ideologues in charge of things. No, that they want to push their ideas. It's like we are the new bosses, so we're now going to do what we want to do, regardless of the fan base and regardless of any past history. Uh, that's gone. This is this is our story now, or it's our platform, and, that, and that's the phrase I really hate. They they're using that platform to push their narrative. And look, I, I don't care what color you are, what race you are, what um, gender you are. Give me a reason to care, and I'll watch. But doing it for the sake of doing it. Just to, I don't know, kind of stab the fan base and you know wave a finger at them. It just seems to be, well, that fan base is just going to go find something else to play with. Well, I don't know what's left. <laughs> it's it's a strange one. Privately done things, independently done stuff. That's the yeah. way to go. It is. I mean, same with comic books. I used to be a huge comic book collector. Uh, I had a massive Batman collection going back to. Oh, 1963. I, I had thousands of these, and I stopped reading Batman about ten years ago when Kevin Smith was writing it because it, he wrote he wrote this graphic novel called Cacophony, and it was the worst thing I'd ever read. And it was like he he didn't understand any of the characters. He was having them say things they wouldn't say, do things they wouldn't do. And I thought, you know, I've had enough of this, so I i kept the only one i kept was the killing joke which i still think is the greatest single issue comic ever um and i sold the rest and financed a trip to sumatra with the money but looking looking at comics now i'm glad that i, I bailed when i did because they just got worse and worse and worse and more woke and woke and woke yeah i haven't i haven't bought a comic myself quite some I'll, I'll buy the occasional kind of uh, annual or compendium of stories of graphic novels um I kind of buying them a bit at random, nothing specific. 
um, not really buying them for the artist or the story, just kind of going into my local Forbidden Planet and going, oh, this looks interesting. Um, I kid you not, I kid you not, this is a real thing. They, they did a, DC did a graphic novel called, and it's been panned and it was a disaster. They did a graphic novel called um, Gotham High about Selena Kyle, Catwoman, yeah. at, at high school being in a love triangle with uh, a young Bruce Wayne and, uh, uh, and Jack Napier, the Joker. Really? And Bruce Wayne, it, all he cares about is how many followers he gets on um on youtube and instagram and uh alfred is gay and chinese just because wow i didn't know that so when, when did that come out that came out a couple of years ago and the same the same woman that did it did um another graphic novel called i am starfire about starfire having a a a fat ugly lesbian daughter who hates her and he's a a, a naughty teenager and, and she has to be a lesbian just because and she has to be fat just because and she has to be naughty just because she's got purple hair no it's black actually but <laughs> I, 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 it's 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 a wonder she hasn't but that again panned nobody reads it manga is taking american comics apart yeah because they won't go woke no because i guess the japanese patriarchal culture almost forbids that doesn't it? The stories are written in that in that way. Um, the thing is, I, I used I watch a lot of anime, and I used to be a big fan when I was like in my early twenties and teens, and I would buy mangas at the time. But when you realise these mangas get to volume four hundred, and they're ten, <laughs> you realise, damn! If if I had to follow, say, Dragon Ball, for instance, uh, which is incredibly popular, um, there's like seven hundred volumes, and you're going, how could I afford that? <laughs> couldn't do it i watched a cartoon once i don't know if it lost something in translation but it didn't seem to make any sense no and i tell you what so a lot of japanese to english just doesn't make sense i mean i, I play a lot of rpgs gaming wise uh, they generally follow the same formula if there's an ancient evil it's come back and a bunch of high school kids generally have to get together or an innocent person doesn't have any idea about it at all will then be granted a power and ability to stop the bad guy and generally it follows a very simple formula and um, it just gets transplanted into the different story. Um, but it is generally the same story, so it gets repetitive really quickly. Um, and it's, it's almost a case of how do you level up and how do you power up or how do you overcome an emotion and how do you overcome a, a social situation generally is, is, the, uh, is the difficulties in their books. Um, but you're right, I mean, it's American comics, uh, uh, quiet. I mean, I know there's, a, there's an issue with distribution in the US now with comic books, isn't there? Isn't mm. it like the main distributor of comics has been um, sidelined? Disney won't send them any Marvel stuff. I think that's what I read. Mm. And um, in the UK, I guess, I, I don't, is there any comic houses in the UK anymore? So I guess we had like, wasn't- 2000 AD. Is that still going over here? No, 2000 AD is still going. I mean, I stopped reading it in 1988. So I guess still going. So I guess you've still. I don't. I don't even know if like the Beano and Dandy still go anymore. Um, or even they're the, still yeah. going. Yeah, Beano and Dandy are still going. The There's B a lot of independent comics in Britain. Yeah. Oh, good. Because I have to say, I, I don't know. I, I probably want to have a look at you and see what's going on. Um, so I guess there was there was a lot of independent houses in the US for a while. 
I think they started getting picked up by Marvel and DC, didn't they? Mm. But I find Japanese folklore fascinating. I've written uh, an encyclopedia on Japanese ghosts and monsters, which are broadly called yokai. Because how, so how, how did you come across those stories? I was just pootling around the internet like you do. And I was on a site looking at um, these comical drawings of various creatures from mythology. And I just got onto one and then started to find out more about it. And then I got interested in Japanese folklore as a whole because it's so bizarre. And then I realized there was no books in, written in English. On, Japanese monsters. So I wrote the first one, a great yokai encyclopedia. Oh, and they have this, they have loads of things. They have they have giant bipedal rabbits that give up corpses and eat their, eat their livers. They have flaming pigs that steal your genitals. They've got um, a whale-sized man-eating sea cucumber that grows out of girls' knickers if they're dropped into the sea. Uh, they've got what else have they got? Um, all sorts of, of really freaky things. And you just wonder where the hell does this folklore come from? It's so utterly bizarre. Do you think about, um, so in the Middle East, and I was, I was reading a book by, oh, it's going to bug me now. Um, so he was talking about hallucinogens and how they influence religions in the Middle East, or so the progenitors of those religions. Do you think, therefore, in the East, they also had the same issue going on? where they were consuming um, psychedelics, perhaps. And that, therefore, they were seeing really bizarre stuff in their dreams or in their imaginations. They, they, they don't really have bizarre. a tradition of it, but what Japan does have is this unique combination of that, that it was literate very early on. It got the printing press and writing and stuff very, very early on. And it's got lots of different religions. When the Chinese went over there, I think in the third century, they said that um, the religion they had then, there was a priestess that no one ever saw that was in this, lived in a big mound-like building, and one man could confer with her, and she conferred with the gods. And they think that's where uh, the, the goddess of the rising sun had, had a genesis. Oh. You know, the, the, the sun goddess. But you had things like Shinto, there and, and there are several other native religions with one uh, whose name I forget now but it's about monks that just go out into the mountains and the name of the of the religion meat translates as to lie down in the mountains and they just go and sit on the waterfalls and meditate and stuff and then you had Buddhism coming in so what you get anywhere when you've got these mix of religions you get older deities and gods become monsters and demons you find that with Christianity. Christianity sure, yeah. demonizes old gods. And it will take, you know, take the holidays and the, the, the rituals of the, the older religion and co-opt it into theirs. In, in West Africa, they believe in this thing called the Ninky Manka, which is this like serpentine dragon-like monster that's supposed to live in the swamps that they're terrified of. And they believe anything goes wrong, it's it's the Ninky Nanka and it's baleful. Influence and it's almost certainly a demonization of a pre Islamic python deity because animals like crocodiles, pythons, and other things are worshipped across Africa. And I think something similar has hap happened in Japan, and a lot of the old deities have become ghosts and monsters and they've lost their meaning because it hasn't been recorded. 
like there's there's one ghost of a woman that just stands in the rain and licks her hand there's uh, another creature with a horse-like head and great long arms and legs and it just sits in abandoned buildings licking the ceiling there's a lot of licking in japanese folklore japanese monsters so a creature that licks the filth out of badly kept public bathrooms and there's uh, things that come, come and eat your hair creep up beyond you and eat your hair and lick your hair so licking is this motif you see again and again Japan, though, i mean in in video games and in in comic books and in manga um there's almost a heavy influence of christianity despite the fact they're not really a christian country at all um but they have the demon and the angel um, as a high motifs in a lot of story. Um, everything is kind of considered to be either a, a good representation or a spirit that is either good or evil. And it's kind of like there's no in between either. They either are one or the other, or there are those who are assisting the other side, shall we say. So there might be an angel that's actually being influenced by a devil um, as the only kind of crossover. And it's remarkable how many stories feature uh, that that motif of the of the devil angel kind of um, talking and influencing people. Um, so when you say there about cultures taking over each other, it's almost like there's there's a there's a Christianity that's kind of poking into Japan without them even realizing it. In legends, you don't get that at all in traditional Japanese legends. Um, the, the creatures themselves, uh, although they might be dangerous and aggressive that's just in their nature they're not sort of working for a higher evil power yeah interesting interesting i wonder how many other cultures have like um that scenario going on i mean i, I couldn't begin to say about the people of say argentina or chile or um bolivia i, I know nothing of their cultures over there i feel quite bad for that i thought i don't i don't know what their Deity system is. I don't know who, what faiths they have in those countries. I'd like to go find out. I mean, what what do you know of places that are a bit more off the map or off the radar? I know. I've heard it about the cryptids that live there. Uh, there is a very good book on Patagonian monsters. I think I think it's called The Monsters of Patagonia. It's all about the folklore of um, that part of South America. Interesting. Actually, I might more pick that up actually. And there is a book uh, that. CFZ Press is about to publish that has been written by a hereditary Eagle Clan Arawak chieftain from Guyana in South America, all about the creatures and ghosts and monsters and, and gods of his religion. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Because well, I think there's so many stories that get lost because we just don't write them down. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be out within the next couple of months. Fantastic. That's, that's really good to hear. So I was um, intrigued to learn something. I've, I've been reading one of Graham Hancock's books about America before, um, talking about, um, I think there was, a, there was a particular archaeological dig that happened in an area where the lead archaeologist decided on his own back, instead of digging to five feet deep, which is where they believe the Clovis culture was, he dug to 15 feet down and found there was still human remains there and uh, human pottery and so on, thus proving there, there was an earlier civilization in areas of America that's pre-Clovis culture. And they just have no idea who and what they are. Um, but he was talking about, say, the mammals, the, the giant mammals that existed in North America. Um, 
and how many of them are they've only just started to now find the bodies of these uh, of these creatures like these mega mammals and it because it was it was considered that america never had any giant mega mammals uh, but they clearly did in their history at some point before the the ice age happened i mean so what do you think about some of those creatures that perhaps would any of them still survive in any capacity uh, probably not in North America, but in South America, there are stories of um, giant ground slugs surviving in the Amazon. Not the gigantic ones that were as big as elephants, but more the sort of bear-sized ones. The, uh, the medium-sized ground slugs. Uh, Mapingauri is one of the, 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 the local names for it, and they say it's this great creature with huge claws, foul stench, and uh, it, it's it's hide is armoured and it can't be pierced except for a small part on the belly. So the, the, the mylodontid ground slopes, which are some of these medium-sized ones, they had skin studded with knobs of bone that, that made armour beneath the hair. And the only place they didn't have it was on the belly, which is a really weird coincidence. Yeah, I can, I can see why there would be someone who goes, oh, these things, do they match up? Yes, they do. Yeah. Because there was like... Um... That was giant sized I don't know. I think it was a horse that was like twice the size of a normal horse. It had a much muscular uh, body. I thought that was a. Actually, that was one of the descriptions I read. Um, like I said, there was the mega sloth, um, the giant cats. I guess America does have some cats, doesn't it? Uh, but I think they're all mainly imported, aren't they? Isn't that, isn't the mountain lion a moved species rather than a Native American? Sorry. No, no. The the, the, the puma is a native species, as is the jaguar. Okay. I misunderstood that. So. Horses were horses evolved in in, uh, in North America millions of years ago, migrated into Europe and Asia and Africa, then died out in North America and were, were unknown there until the white men brought them back. Ah, I, I didn't know that actually. So it's interesting. You always see the uh, the Native Americans just running around on horses, and that was their. Uh, primary uh, mode of transport but if we brought them to them it makes you wonder how they traverse such massive uh, giant tracks uh, without um, mammals and horses to support them because I was I was watching a, a documentary just the other day about how this Native American tribe would uh, they would migrate almost a thousand miles um, per season it's like how do you do that but no Man, so what, what have you got coming up then? Show me in uh, the future, so the next couple of years, what, what have you got uh, um, coming up for you? Oh, uh, uh, in, I think it's the 13th of October. Sorry, no, the 13th of November, I'll be speaking at the London Cryptozoology Club. Uh, they're having a, a, a day conference that I'm talking, uh, they have a talk called Death by Cryptid, which is about the rare cases when cryptid animals are supposed to have killed people. So I guess you're uh, up in the lake in Siberia will be a, a part That of will be part of the beast of Jardavan. Um, very rare cases where things like Sasquatch and Yeti are supposed to have killed people. Um, giant anacondas, giant squid, stuff like that. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, then the last weekend in November, which is the 27th, 28th, I'll be up in Whitby talking at something called Winter Ghosts, which is the part of the folk horror revival uh, thing. And I'll be talking about um, dragon legends, both worldwide and in Britain, and what's behind them. And you know, could, uh, could 
something actually have existed in reality that yeah i was up in uh whitby um a couple of months ago in fact and uh actually, i'd never been it's one of those places that i always wanted to go and never never ever got around to it so i was finally glad i, I got to whitby and climbed 199 steps and walked around the abbey and so on and uh, took the drone out over over the sea of that beautiful place absolutely amazing and uh, i did speak to a lady there and she actually was talking about dragons and she said that she comes from newcastle and she says newcastle has this um well, she just was describing the bay while pointing at Whitby Bay. She says, if you could take one of those arms out there, which is where a lighthouse was at the end, it says, there's one of those, but it's kind of made of land. It's in Newcastle. And it's believed there's a dragon under under that up in the Newcastle Bay. And I was like, oh, interesting. I'll keep that as a note. That would be uh, Marsden Bay. And the oh, dragon yeah. is called the Shoney. So do you know much about that legend, I guess? To... Yes, well, there's a... A pub called Marsden Grotto that's actually built into the, the cliff face, and you have to go down in a lift to get to it. And originally it was a, it was a cave, and that was extended by a guy called Blaster Jack in the, I believe, the 18th century, who used um, gunpowder to enlarge the cave. And he made some tea rooms, and him and his wife lived very well off of this. And when he passed away, it became a pub, and the pub is gone through landlord to landlord to the present day. Now, in the sea around there, you still there, mate? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. I was, I was listening. Oh, sorry. I thought, I thought we'd lost the connection there. No, no, in, in, in the sea uh, around the area, uh, there was supposed to be a sea dragon called the Shoni. And when the area was under the Dane law, so the story goes, uh, that the Vikings went in fear of this creature attacking their longships. So they would draw lots and make a sacrifice. They would trust someone up who drew the shortest lot, slit their throat and throw them into the water in the hope that the Shoni would devour them instead of attacking the, the Viking longship. After a while, this became, rather than just a, a means of forsaking the creature, it became almost like a worship, it became a cult. Um, Bodies would wash up around um, Marsden Bay and all along that coast as far as north as Lindisfarne, crushed up with their throats slit, sometimes half eaten. Now, this case has been investigated by a mate of mine called Mike Hallowell, who was a 14 researcher and author. He's retired now. But uh, he said that he was told that the last body washed up in Marsden Bay in 1928. Oh really? So actually, that puts it's it just that, the modern day almost. Yeah, they used they used the beer cellar in Marsden Grotto, the pub, as uh, a place to lay out the bodies before the police came and got them. And um, they they said they would turn up regularly in this area. And the last one was 1928, which means if this story is on the level that there was a dragon worship cult making human sacrifices to a sea dragon well into the 20th century. And Mike says that. He had phone calls warning him off, saying, you know, don't pursue it anymore. You know, it's good for you to believe this story. Which makes you wonder if there's some sort of vestige of the cult still around. But Mike also said he saw the creature himself. He said he was driving with his family along the cliffs and he saw these other cars parked up and people looking out into the sea. And he said he saw the back of this huge animal cult and it was brown with a darker stripe along the spine. And it was a big hump and he could see the 
neck and tail coming off it under the water. And he said it wasn't a whale, it wasn't a dolphin, it wasn't a basking shark. And all these people were looking at it and they thought it was the Shoney. Wow. That's a quite a considerable story I've ever heard of before. Thank you. Um, no, I, 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 the impression I got from what that, that, that lady was telling me, I think she was trying to tell me that the the bay itself, sorry, the the dragon became rock and became the the lion in the um, in the bay. Oh, that's from Yorkshire. That's yeah. that, that's not from Newcastle. That I thought she said it was Newcastle, so it's possible she might get them confused because we were obviously yeah. There's a um, a row of rocks that go out into the sea in um, North Yorkshire, and they were supposed to have been. Uh, the petrified bones of a dragon. Ah, so it, it sounds like from that she's got two stories confused then. Yeah. But that, that's what always happens over the years, doesn't it? They always all seem to merge yeah. and get lost with each other. So it's vital that people know what they are and they're written down. Man, so I'm just, I'm just trying to consider what must have looked like that creature. I mean, so have you had any like close encounters yourself yeah a couple of times um once the last time i was in sumatra i heard the orang pendek calling and the guide said that that's the orang pendek and it was less than a mile away in the jungle and when we followed we followed the noise there were footprints and, and that on that particular expedition we found footprints and handprints all over the place but the, uh, we, we, we got hair from a previous expedition that was looked at by Lars Thomas from Copenhagen University, who's an expert in mammal hair. And he said that uh, it, was a, it was an unknown primate. It was related to the Sumatran orangutan, but it wasn't the Sumatran orangutan. It was related to it, but distinct. And in his words, he said, I was forced to conclude there's a large unknown primate in, in Sumatra. But even closer than that was the first time I was in Russia. I, I was with a couple of other guys staking out this old abandoned farmhouse. And his farmhouse had been abandoned since the early 70s. And it consisted of an L-shaped veranda running uh, around three rooms. And you couldn't go from room to room. You had to go out onto the veranda via three different doors. And, and um, we had set up camera traps and bait to put out fruit and honey and meat. And we were staking the place out and about 10 o'clock at night, I hear a strange twittering noise like a bird and then the camera trap goes off. Now witnesses I'd spoken to said that the Almasty makes this weird twittering noise like a bird. And I thought, blimey, is that, is that what it, I think it is. Then nothing else happened and it got to about two, 2 2.30 in the morning and three of us went to warm ourselves around a stove in this old uh, abandoned farm because we'd been out on the veranda um, and one of my mates fell asleep on this manky old mattress and me and this guy called Adam Davis were warming ourselves around this stove. Now the door to this room was a few inches ajar and there was moonlight and starlight. And from outside comes a deep guttural vocalization. And I, I said to my mate, Hear that? And he said, Yeah. Then something walked along the veranda 
and it was on two legs because when it passed the door, it blocked out the moonlight and the starlight to a height of around seven foot. This thing was towards the door, whatever it was. But we just saw a shape blocking out the moonlight and the starlight as it was walking along. And I said to Adam, it's out on the veranda. And we grabbed our cameras and running out. But we found nothing except darkness and silence. And we looked around, we looked around the farm and the outbuildings, but we couldn't see anything. The bait hadn't been touched. When we checked the uh, cameras in the morning, all we got was vegetation moving about. So was that an almasty? I don't know. It certainly wasn't a bear. A bear would have been, would have been walking on two legs and it would have made more noise. And uh, the bear would, I guess, would also stay around. Is there is there many bears in that particular part of the world? Oh, yeah. Lots of bears. Is, is it possible to get them confused? I mean, well, one, guy, one guy we heard about said he was a hunter. He got what he thought was a bear in his crosshairs and then it stood up and he said it was an owlmaster. And they won't shoot owlmaster as a taboo about killing them because they're thought to be wild men. They're thought to be a, some form of human relative. Isn't it in Russia they have a there's a protection law for Almasty? Isn't that aren't they considered to be wild humans or something? Is that right? Well, there was a official commission. There was what they called the Snowman Commission in the 1950s, started by Boris Prochnev and Dmitry Bayanov and Eugene Kaufman. And that uh, and Peter Smolin, who run who's the director of the, the Darwin Museum. And that was a government-backed thing, and they, they um, did expeditions into the Pamir Mountains and the uh, Caucasus. And even when it was disbanded, they all still met up at the Darwin Museum and carried out their research privately. And it's just been reinstated. There's a new Snowman Commission now in, in Russia. Yeah, so what, what, what does that mean? Is it if they come across those creatures, they have the same human rights? Is, is it something like that? Well, that's, that's a good question. If these things turn out to be hominins, that, that means members of the genus Homo, so they're, rela they're relations of well, the ancestors of man, rather than great apes, do they get human rights? How, how would we work that? I don't know. So what, because I know there was that, there was that, the wolf baby child, wasn't there, in the 1950s? I think actually it was later. Oh, that was back in the 20s. Well, there's been a number of these supposed wolf children and bear children and, and so on. The famous ones were, I think, they were in the, the turn of the last century. Um, and they were in India. That's right, yes. And they became quite famous. One of them, one of them died fairly early on. The other one, you know, lived a reasonably long life but they never learned to speak but it's come out since then the whole story of them being found with wolves and being sucked by wolves is nonsense that was put about by the guy that ran the orphanage to get money for his orphanage they were just two mentally retarded girls oh okay they made this story up because yeah, I'm, I'm sure i read a story that the one of the wolf children actually grew up and had children the children turned out to be like normal human as it were they didn't have human babies. human babies have to be suckled for much much longer than wolf clubs so it wouldn't work no they die now there have been feral children that have been abandoned for whatever reason not babies but older ones that have lived with wolves or with wild dogs there's one famous one i think from italy 
of a guy living, his, his parents were dead and he lived with an old man in the woods. When the man died, he just went feral. And it, um, I think there's a documentary about it. And he said he could approach wolves and bears and stuff and they wouldn't attack him and he lived off the land. And he wasn't found until he was, I think it's something like 14. I did read a story about feral children out in um, uh, it's in Australia where I think there was three children and when they were found almost like 12, 13 years later, they turned out to be more because they'd been inbreeding between them. But somehow they'd actually managed somehow to survive just off the land alone. And uh, I saw that as a documentary uh, and that was pretty remarkable. And one of those actually had uh, an abundance of hair on the body, one of the land stood. Um, and I'm sure that they said that there was uh, always um, wolves and like, animals around them. It's, it's, it's interesting how do animals really uh, co-opt humans? Is, is that kind of a, a regular thing that happens in the wild when there's someone who's... There have been cases where apes have stolen human babies and attempted to suckle human babies. So I wonder how often that actually happens, I mean. Because there was the whole thing, what happened with Harambi, the the, the, the ape that was at the, I think it was at New York Zoo when someone had thrown a child in there or the child had dropped in and the, the mm. ape came to pick up the, the child and unfortunately they, they didn't know what action take other than to shoot it. Um, but I, I can't... Well, they were Americans, so of course they shot him. They love killing animals, they love guns and they love killing animals. Similar but, things have happened in other zoos. A, a very similar thing happened in Jersey Zoo. A kid fell off the wall into the gorilla enclosure and the male gorilla there just went over and protected him and stayed with him. That's happened a couple of times. There's another zoo. I think it happened at um, either Howlett's or Port Lim as well. So almost exactly the same scenario, but because this is England and not America, the gorilla wasn't murdered by gun-worshipping nutcases. So do you think they would have just whipped out the old uh, tranquilizer guns and just nuked yeah. them and collected the child afterwards? I guess, yeah, and it America does have a, uh, a panic uh, first option, which is if we've got guns, we use them straight away. It's an incredible thing. We talk the same language, but you're a completely different culture entirely. Um, and guns are much more abundant over there. So what do you think is going to happen? So if any, if we find a creature, say like the, the owl nasty, or we find orang pendek, what is the first option to protect them? What will happen to them? I think it depends on where they're found. I hope that they will they will have full protection because the world's attention will be on that area. So hopefully the politicians will realise it's in their favour uh, that the animal is protected. And if it's something spectacular like a yeti or an almaster or something like that, um, it could have the cultural significance of, say, the panda does in China. So hopefully they'll be protected, they'll get full protection. Because that's true, they, they didn't actually believe the panda existed, did they? They didn't believe no. it was a black and white panda for a hundred years or something crazy, until they eventually found it. It was, uh, I think it was um, Theodore Roosevelt's son that uh, tracked down a hibernating panda and then very bravely shot it to death while it was asleep. Of course, and Americans and their guns. Yeah, and uh, that was the first panda. Yeah, because they, they didn't believe they existed, did they? They didn't believe gorillas existed. No, I just... And that's crazy, isn't it? So, or giant no. squid. No. 
Uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of resistance on the giant squid for. Of, well, there was, a, there was a guy called Pierre Denis de Montfort, who was uh, around in the late 18th century, and he was a biologist, and he specialised in mollusks, and he wrote lots of books on mollusks and the study of mollusks and seashells and things like that. And he was very well respected, and he worked with the Natural History Museum and the Botanical Gardens, and he went off on expeditions gathering um, gathering specimens as far afield as Egypt. And then he got talking to some whalers from Nantucket who had settled in Paris, and they told him stories about finding great sucker marks on the hides of sperm whales that they had captured, and dying sperm whales vomiting up these great tentacles 50, 40, 50 feet long. And he came to the conclusion that there were giant squid, and those creatures were probably behind the legends of the crater. So he wrote this book on giant squid. And because of that, in France, he became a complete pariah. He lost his job. He couldn't be employed anywhere else. He was reduced to selling seashells for, for a living. And this great respected man ended up dying of starvation in a Parisian gutter in 1820. Uh, in the 1850s, the first giant squid was actually captured. He'd been right all along, but he'd never been given the credit for it. It's awful. I, I guess that's happened throughout history, hasn't it? The, um, the most obvious and the truth is there, but no one ever believes him. One of, one of my missions in life is, is the, you know, the rehabilitation and recognition of Pierre Denis de Mont. So is that, is that something that can be done like the blue... What do we have? We have them blue uh, markers on buildings, don't we, the, to recognise yeah. them? you think there's something similar to that in France? Well, they should do something similar to that. I don't even know what he looks like. I don't know even if there's a drawing of him just now. Yeah. But he wrote masses of books and it's high time he was recognised. Yeah, well, what have they got? The Blue Plaque Programme, that's it. That's what they call it. Um, so there's, a few, there's a, quite a few around Nottingham, um, like um, J.M. Barry and so on. Um, yeah, so I wonder if there's something similar to that. I wonder if a, a campaign can be created via the cryptozoological fan community and the supporters, mm. perhaps, to get some of that done as, a, as an option for you for 2021. <laughs> Maybe a, a permanent display in the Paris Natural History Museum. That sounds uh, doable. Um, I, don't, I don't know anyone who works at France's Natural History Museum at all. Otherwise, it's a case of just fire off some emails and go, hey, What's going on? Do we know, do we know what this guy did and talked about? Is his, uh, is his books secured? Um, I guess it would be to republish them, perhaps? Wouldn't that be the correct moving forward? Yeah, and uh, the, the one on the giant squid, I'd love to see it republished, and I'd love to see a, an English translation of it as well. So I guess it'd be old French as well, wouldn't it? Mm. or older French <laughs> um, so yeah you have to be brought up to modern French and then brought over to English I guess yeah. that sounds like a, a task and a half um, I think well, that's one, of the, one of the things I'm really interested in is lost cryptozoological works and cryptozoological works that aren't in English and getting them translated Boris Prozhnev who I mentioned earlier 
he was uh, a Russian scientist, very well respected in Russia, uh, not so well known in the rest of the world. But he, he dabbled in all sorts of fields, history, biology, all sorts of things. And uh, he was an ardent supporter of the Almasty, the wild man, and he wrote um, a book called Pro The Prob Problem of the Relic Hominoids. They wrote it um, in the early 70s. And only ever about 130 copies were ever made. And it was never translated into English. I tried to get a copy from the, the uh, Moscow Library and they wouldn't send it abroad. But I tracked down, I managed to track down his great, great nephew. All right. Who had got a copy of the original book. So the CFZ Press have now had it translated and it's just about to come out imminently and we call it the Soviet Sasquatch and it contains masses of stuff that's never been seen in the West before that the Snowman Commission found out from the various um, travels and interviews and stuff. And it's, this stuff has never, never before been seen in the West. That's fantastic. I mean, they're, they're the things that really interest me, I guess, even uh, Philip Mantle's work. Um, with flying the suppress, of course, he's a he's a he's into ufology and the history of that. But he's spent like a lifetime now getting reports from other countries and then translating them to English. And I think that's a that's the most important thing is get them to a, the biggest audience they could possibly be seen by. And when I hear stories of cryptozoology and stories of creatures around the world that have government reports investigating them, that's the stuff that you know gives it credibility in a way that uh, nothing else can. We've just got our hands on uh, an unpublished book by a lady called um, Odette, uh, what's her second name? Odette uh, uh, Cherine. And she was uh, half, half Russian. Uh, she was English and she wrote in English. And she wrote a couple of books on Relic Hominin, The Snowman and Company, and The Yeti, all called. But she wrote this third one that's never been published and she wrote it in the early 80s and we've just we've just got hold of it and we're going to be reprinting it well printing it for the first time because it was never it was never ever printed so are you going to publish uh, the the russian version to publish over there as well oh no no she didn't she didn't write in russian she wrote in english but oh, this sorry, particular book this particular book was never published it's one of her lost works so that's going so to be... The Bosnia book is, is the one that was in Russian. Okay. That's just about to come out. This one will be out later in the year, this one by Odette. Well, that's, that's incredible, actually, to, to find books like that or, that are well, perhaps doing research or in progress or she never thought there was enough in it, so she was going to add more to it, and then life, of course, takes over. So it's great that stuff like that actually gets to happen. So I guess, does her, does her family... Um, are, are they aware of that? I don't know if she has any living family. Oh, well. So I guess that would be a sort of a, a coup for a, a foreword of some kind. Are, are you writing the foreword for the book? I don't know yet, maybe. We've, we've not long had it. I'm still reading, I'm still working my way through it. We've, uh, we've got the, the book by, by Damon Corey, the Arawak Indian chief, that's coming out next. And then this, this book by Odette Cherine is probably 
going to be, you know, late this year, early next year. So you've got a bit of a roadmap plan then, have you? Yeah. All right, excellent. So if you wanted to leave your website name and address or places where people can get in contact with you, uh, would you mind shouting them out? Yeah, uh, the website is www.cfz.org.uk. That's www.cfz.org.uk. Uh, my email, which has changed recently, is now dr3uk at yahoo.com. That's doctor written as a complete word, all lowercase, then three as the number rather than letters. So dr3uk at yahoo.com. Excellent. Okay, cool. Do, can people find you on social media and so on? I, I know you have a, a YouTube channel, don't you, with um, some videos on that? Yeah, um, uh, if you just put Centre for Fortune Zoology or CFZ TV into, um, into uh, YouTube search, you'll get it. Excellent. And I guess people can find you on Facebook and Twitter and all those yeah. places. Facebook, yeah. I very rarely use Twitter. Yeah. And you do, it's interesting, people do use Facebook and Twitter very differently, although most people just tend to post the same thing in both places. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I like Twitter. I, I use it, uh, manage to keep in contact with certain people, but Facebook generally is where most people find me. But no, uh, Richard, thank you very much for spending some time with me tonight. Um, it's been good to actually talk to someone after being in the hospital for so long and you know, I feel like I'm alive again. And I worry. Matt, so you've got obviously got a lot coming up, so I'm gonna um, look forward to see what you what you're gonna be publishing. I'm certainly gonna look forward to getting some of those books and uh, having a read through some stuff. I mean, my time in hospital, I managed to get through like so many books. It was crazy. I managed to read for I read Steve Mirror's um, Phenomena magazine in one go. I've never yeah. done that ever. <laughs> I got to read it all in one go, and I'm sure there was something in there from you on that one. God, I've, I've lockdown, I've read a heap of novels. Actually, most of them really good. Yeah, it's it's been good to actually read stuff. I was kind of slow down a little bit, so that's been really interesting. So, if you want a good, really creepy ghost novel that is full of fourteen fourteen references and fourteen Easter eggs, read Apparition Phase by Will McLean. It's absolutely brilliant. It's got references to Jeff the Talking Mongoose, Doctor Who. Um, the Philip experiment, all kinds of ghost photographs. It's like a 14 smorgasbord, but it's a really, really creepy, it's a really creepy um, little little novel. It's about two two um, very clever twins, a boy and a girl, and they decide when they get hold of a camera they're going to fake a ghost photograph, and they go through all the different famous ghost photographs, and they they decide on the one that looks the scariest is that is the monk with no face you know the big towering monk yeah, inside yeah. by the altar in that church in yorkshire so they try and recreate that and show it to their classmates and it's about what happens afterwards ah, interesting stuff interesting. and it's really creepy just want to get i just want to give that a book um a shout out again what was the name of that apparition phase by will mcclain Okay, there we go. Apparition phase by Will McLean. Okay, so that's going to go into my search bar in just a moment. I should be, I'm going to look at that. That's really good. Uh, Richard, I want to say thank you. Man. I, mean, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity we've had a chance to have a chat tonight. And just to catch up, it's been so long. So it's been really good. Yeah.
Well, thank you very much for that. I'm going to hit the old stop. If you can make up to Whitby or down to London in November, yeah, you know what? Or two. I'm sure. I'm sure I can. So let's just. Uh, um, do you want to give me those dates? I'll put them in my diary. And uh, yeah, uh, the the London Cryptozoology Club. That is on November the thirteenth. So, I mean, I can Facebook you the details. Oh, sure, okay. And then Winter Ghosts, which is the British Folk Horror Revival convention. That's in Whitby, isn't it? Yeah. That's the 27th and the 28th of November. All right. Let's just... Um, but yeah, so on, on that topic of big cats then, so uh, there's been a lot of big cats, hasn't there? I mean, I... It keeps popping up in the news. I mean, I think I've seen so much stuff in the Metro about big cats in the last year or so than I've ever seen in my life. Oh, Christ. Uh, the, 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 the documentary, that British Big Cats documentary, was absolutely great. They got um, uh, in Gloucestershire, they've got a camera trap that takes a photograph of this cat and a, and a tracker from South Africa who's familiar with big cats. So, well, that looks like a tumour to me. Uh, have tracks identified they had the bite marks in bone because big cats have a very distinctive bite mark with the carnassial teeth the shearing teeth at the back yeah they leave like three puncture wounds they call them bone pits okay. uh, in the bone and that was they was a they were done by a guy from the Royal agricultural society and saying yeah this is a big cat oh, so what do you, how many of these cats do you think there actually are in the British countryside? Oh, that's a question. Nobody really knows. Because no one's... I mean, they, they've been sightings of them for years and years and years. So either they are being released on a regular basis or they're breeding. Sure. I mean, I'm assuming these are the remnants of the zoo animals, aren't they, that got released in the 80s? Well, up until the mid-70s, you could... Um, you know, buy any animal you want. You could buy any animal you want, and any old duffer, if they had the money in the space, could start a zoo. You didn't have to have any qualifications or experience. Harrods had a pet department that sold lions and even a gorilla. Right, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, some kid got chomped in London, so they brought in the Dangerous Wild Animals Act, I think it's 76, I think, or 77. And then uh, they said you had to provide proof you could keep these animals securely and uh, you've got to have proof that they couldn't get out and attack anybody and you've got to pay a hefty license fee and a load of people just let them go. I mean in the documentary there's film of this guy being interviewed and he admitted to letting them go. Oh yeah. So do you think they just ended up in the woodland? I mean there was, there was that quite famous gorilla bound by the canal in like the late 70s um, in Manchester. I know that was one of the released gorillas. Um, it was like the beast. I've never heard of gorillas being released anywhere. It was a single one. It actually was a 15 time story, actually, I read on that. Um, it was called like uh, the beast of something canal. And it was like, uh, the, actually the canal began with a B and that was, that was in Manchester. And uh, that was always put down to being a released um, ape of some kind. Um, but yeah, the cats, the cats have almost, well, they're managing to maintain their population, aren't they? I guess they are. They're breeding well. well they have no. They have 
a massive population of deers, rabbits, and other things to prey on, and they've got no competition. No, so they're just going to keep going. I guess it's only a matter of time before there actually is an attack on a human, and I guess that's when the media will go into a, a new frenzy. There have been alleged attacks on people. Um, one woman said she'd gone through the graveyard where they, her and her husband had put out some bait, and they come back to check on it, and she trod on a panther's tail, and it lapped, leapt up and scratched her stomach. Well, I don't think you could get close enough to a panther without it noticing you. So I think that story is nonsense. Yeah, I get that. And the, wound, the wounds didn't look severe enough. Uh, then there was a, a lad, I think his name was Josh Trellick or something. He's a Welsh lad. He said he, he'd come across a, a panther and it had reared up and scratched his face. And once again, if, it, if a panther had slashed his face with his claws, the, the, the wounds would have been much more secure. So it's much more severe, I mean. Yeah, it's designed, the claws, of course, is to tear. Um, so it's going to cut into the flesh deep and hard and then rip out because it's a panther or a, a cheetah or whatever. Uh, I, I, thus far, I've been un unconvinced by any of the alleged attacks on humans. 